So here's what we've been talking about together over the past number of weeks. Just like Kristen has found a focus in her life, a way that she believes God has called and gifted her to join him in his work in a hurting and broken world. Just like she's discovered that, just like Brad Widstrom shared last week how he's discovered that, we hope that you can discover that for your life as well. You can discover it whatever season you're in right now. You can discover it as your life changes and grows over the time. However life is changing, here's what we believe. God wants to give you a single focus for your life. Some gifts and passions from him for you to join him in doing his work. And here's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about all the ways in our lives that our attempts to find focus can be frustrated. Have you ever found yourself getting frustrated? As I was getting ready, uh, writing this sermon, I realized I had a scheduling issue to resolve. Namely, uh, my wife, who's a nurse, works 12-hour shifts. And she got scheduled to work a shift today on Sunday, which meant that as I was getting ready to preach a sermon today, I also needed to get ready to get all the kids clothed and fed and to church this morning. And then I need to get them home after church right now. And as I was getting ready to do that today, I remembered a time I did that a number of years ago. I think I only had three kids at the time, but I had successfully got them all to church on my own. No problems. Everybody was happy. Not a single tear was shed. I promise you that's true. But then after the service, And not only after the service, but after I'd finished talking to people and chatting with people after the service, it was time to get the kids all back into the car. Well, Naomi was my youngest at that point, so when I was trying to gather them, I needed to first help Naomi get her shoes on. But by the time Naomi's shoes were on, Esther had lost the stuffed animal she'd brought with, so we went on a hunt to find the stuffed animal. Finally, finding the stuffed animal, I come back, and not only are Naomi's shoes off again, but they've disappeared, so I need to find her shoes. And you know how this story goes. It seems like no matter which kid I get ready, another kid loses something or wanders off, and it feels like I've got the same problem over and over and over, and I got a little frustrated. You know what it's like to be in those frustrating circumstances? Here's what I find when I'm in moments like that. I find I often ask myself, why is this happening to me? And you know, there's like a special tone of voice that comes when we ask the question, why is this happening to me? Sometimes your voice elevates. Why? We say, and we get frustrated. It's a circumstance that for me uh, is captured in the phrase that is sometimes known as banging your head against the wall, right? You do one thing just to have it replaced by another thing, and no matter what you do, it just feels like over and over you're banging your head against the wall, and it hurts, and you're saying, why? I mean, getting my shoes on my kids and helping them find their stuffed animals is really just a small example of what you and I both know can happen in a lot bigger and more challenging circumstances as well. And what I find is that while asking this question of why is a fine thing to do, sometimes we can find ourselves getting stuck in our pursuit of answering the question of why. And I say stuck because sometimes 
even if I answer the question, it doesn't help me get anywhere forward in my life. I can very often just get stuck in the question of why. Turns out, as you know, we've been following the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we followed him as he was called to ministry by Jesus. We followed him as he planted churches all around the Roman Empire. We followed him now to the city of Jerusalem, where he's been imprisoned and standing trial. And through it all, Paul has managed to come into these challenging circumstances, but not get stuck with the question of why, but rather he seemed to move through them. And I'm going to suggest at the end of the sermon today that he actually had a better question that he asked, and I'm going to invite you to consider how maybe you could ask that better question if you're feeling stuck in your life as well. Here's what really gave clarity for Paul. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew what his one focus was. God had told him, Paul, you are my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That statement from God became the one focus for Paul in his life. And here's the big idea we've been talking about. I believe if we can find in our lives a single focus from God, what we will discover is that focus makes us better at life and it makes life better. We live in an incredibly noisy and distracted world. Our hearts and minds and energy can go so many different directions. If you're like me, I can get so distracted so easily. And here's what I find almost every time about distraction. The things that I get distracted by are almost never as important as the things I get distracted from. Let me say that again. The things I get distracted by, the things that take my attention away, are almost never as important as the things I get distracted from. Our energy is kind of a limited commodity. We can only put it in so many places, and so we need focus to help us avoid the distractions, overcome the challenges, and do the work that God has designed us to do. Now, we have made a caveat along the way, which is, this is hard work, and focus doesn't necessarily make life easier, but it makes it easier to do the hard work of life. So the guiding question we've been asking week after week after week after week is, what is the focus of your life? For some of you, uh, I've actually heard, especially from a number of people who have recently retired, and you said, that question's really hard because the answer has recently changed and my focus is finding new expressions from right now. For others, you've said, you know what? I I've struggled with this. I've sort of wandered around looking at it for some time and, and this is good because it's really hard and I want to find it. And yet for others, you've said, you know what? I have an answer, but it's always good to be reminded so that I can keep my focus on the things that deserve my focus. We're going to jump back into the story of Paul in just a minute, but I also want to acknowledge that specifically some people have shared with me, you know what, I get it. What's the focus of your life? It's a great question. But I've got a different question. I just want to know, how do I find clearer focus in my life? And I just want to say one thing about that to those of you who are really struggling with, I'd love to have a focus, but I need to find a focus first. 
As you know, uh, I've been creating, along with the sermons every week, a number of what I'm calling response activities. And there's one I want to highlight today that gets really practical and tactical that I hope might be a help with you. See, a few people have told me, Carl, this whole idea of focus, it's very sort of conceptual. It's very sort of, I don't know, hard to wrap my mind around. So here's the activity that you can find. It's in the Bible app. If you're following the program notes there, it's linked on our homepage, uh, sendcov.org, this week at CCC. And here's the activity. It's a simple little piece of paper that's called a task list. And here's what it'll invite you to do. Look at your life. Write down all the main activities that you spend your time doing. And it invites you to rank, or rather evaluate, all that list of activities by two different criteria. Question one, am I passionate about this activity? Question two, am I proficient at this activity? If you're having a hard time finding a clear focus in your life, here's what I'll suggest. That sweet spot of activities that you are both passionate about and proficient at can be a great way to discover what God might be giving you as one focus for your life. We believe that God made all of us. And so often the passions he's given us and the gifts he's given us, when they combine, that's a powerful clue to follow to find your focus. So as always, I just want to encourage you, don't let our time together end here. Keep digging in throughout the week, and I hope these response activities are helpful. With that, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts now. We're in chapters 23, 24, and 25. If you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to open your Bible and go there now. But here's where we're at. Paul went to Jerusalem, and like we talked about last week, the people in Jerusalem were mad at him, so a riot started and they almost tore him limb from limb. He was arrested by the Roman authorities for being in the center of the riot, but now he's under the protection of the Roman authorities because they found out that he is a Roman citizen. And being a Roman citizen is a big deal. And he's not just any Roman citizen. He's a citizen from a very important city called Cilicia. Well, Paul was put on trial by the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. However, that trial did not result in anything conclusive. So the Roman soldiers said, we can't hand Paul over to you. There's no evidence that he's done anything wrong. And the Roman government is caught between trying to please the Jewish people who have a lot of authority and power, but also uphold their laws, which says, you don't get to just execute Roman citizens. And because of that challenging circumstance, they send Paul away from Jerusalem to another city called Caesarea. And in Caesarea, the governor who oversees this whole region, he is going to, to see a second trial for Paul now. That governor's name is Felix, and the, the leadership in Jerusalem sends a letter to Felix saying, hey, you know, the Jewish people, they're mad at Paul. They want to execute him, but you know what? Roman law, it doesn't seem to say he's done anything wrong. And I don't know, we don't really know what to do. So we're just passing this up the line to you, Felix. And we would like you to make the decision for us. So as we jump in at the end of Acts 23, Paul has been sent to Caesarea. The letter has been sent to Governor Felix. And here is how the story 
picks up now. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. So Paul tried at the Sanhedrin. It didn't happen. He's now about to be tried before the governor, a man named Felix, and maybe things will go better the second time. Well, here's what we learn about the trial with Felix. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Okay, so it looks like we might have some hope. Paul is being kept under guard, but it's what we might call house arrest. He probably has a little bit of freedom, and he has access to his daily needs being met by those who care for him. I can imagine that Paul's friends at this time, time are hopeful that something might go well. There's no evidence that Paul has broken Roman law. He's a Roman citizen. Maybe this is the moment when Paul will finally be released. <laughs> Unfortunately, we find out just a couple of verses later, here's what happens next. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. <laughs> so the trial in Jerusalem with the Sanhedrin doesn't go Paul's way. He gets transferred to a higher court. Nothing is he's, he's found innocent of all charges, so he hopes maybe it'll go better. And what happens? First of all, Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years. And then on top of that, Felix loses his office and a new governor comes in, a guy named Festus. And so Paul finds himself standing right back where he started. But Paul's a man of endurance. He's a man of courage. So he pulls up, you know, he pulls his, girds up his loins, as scripture says, and he says, all right, third time's gonna be a charm. Actually, it might even be the fourth time, depending on how you count all the trials. Festus hears about Paul. Paul's a little bit of a celebrity at this point, so Festus wants to get it right. And so here's what happens next. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea, to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. 
So Festus hears about the trial. He hears the charges from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who are still trying to kill Paul. And he says, okay, we're going to go back to Caesarea and we'll do this in person. But it turns out that just like Felix before him, Festus is stuck in a difficult place. He needs to honor Paul's citizenship, which is a big deal. But as the governor, he's also trying to curry favor with the Jewish people who have a lot of influence. Here's what happens next. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. So once again, we're on the edge of our seats. The charges cannot be proven. Paul is clearly innocent. Maybe his freedom has finally come. But it turns out, Festus, like Felix before him, like the Sanhedrin before them, still can't solve this incredibly complicated riddle. What ends up happening is Festus reaches out to the next level up, the king whose name is Agrippa. And sure enough, what happens when Agrippa hears from Festus about this complicated trial of Paul? Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he replied, tomorrow you will hear him. So Paul was tried before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, possibly twice, before Festus, kind of twice. He's now going to stand trial before King Agrippa. And at the end of his trial before King Agrippa, Paul finally, Paul finally gets a little fed up. And he says, I'm a citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar himself. And that's his right as a citizen, which we're actually going to talk about next week as the story continues. But when you sum it all up, here's, how Paul, here's what Paul sees when he looks at his circumstances. He sees that in just the last short period of time, he's had six trials in both Jewish and Roman courts. He's had at least two plots to kill Paul this close to being murdered. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea. And to me, when I add that all up, that equals one really frustrated Paul. I can only imagine Paul must have felt like he was banging his head against the wall. All my kids did this at some point when they were little toddlers. They get really frustrated and for some reason they decide in their anger they're going to hit their head literally against the wall or against the floor because, ah, maybe it'll make it better. It's a cringeworthy circumstance that Paul is facing right now. I have a friend who, because of his business circumstance, found himself in court proceedings for a number of years in connection with his workplace. He hadn't done anything wrong. He just had to be part of this stretched out legal process. And he said all the time, it felt like his whole life had a wet blanket over him, just this burden weighing him down. 
Paul, all the more, not only had years of court proceedings, he was imprisoned the whole time. I can only imagine that Paul might have asked at some point during this season, why is this all happening to me? But it turns out that Paul didn't get stuck in the question of why. As a matter of fact, not only did he not get stuck there, but like we've seen Paul do time and time and time again, he seems to be able to cut through the challenges and keep moving forward in life because of his incredible focus. And there's a couple scriptures that I want to look at right now that we kind of passed over because we just summarized a little over two chapters of scripture. But I want to look now a little closer at one part of the story. Paul's in prison in Caesarea, right? And we find out, you can read this in chapters 24 and 25. Go read it now if you want while I'm talking. We find out that while while Paul is in prison, he actually forms a relationship with the governor, Felix. It turns out Felix knows about Christianity and knows about Judaism and has some kind of faith himself. So Felix regularly invites Paul to come and meet with him personally, him and his wife, and gives Paul an incredible audience. This would be kind of like the governor of the state of Colorado saying, hey, why don't you come and meet with me on a regular basis and talk with me about faith? Now, you know, maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just a little simplistic, but here's what comes to my mind. Paul, Paul, you have got a once in a lifetime opportunity right now. The man who holds your imprisonment and your freedom in his hands, he has invited you to meet with him and talk with him often. Okay, Paul, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell jokes. You're going you're to speak kind and flattering language to this man. If you've got any strings you can pull, Paul, you pull those strings for Governor Felix because he could release you. That's what I would be talking about. Maybe I am a person of little faith. I don't know. But that's what I would talk about if I was imprisoned and invited to speak regularly with the man who could give me my freedom. Well, it turns out we're given a clue what Paul actually talks about. And there's no evidence that Paul actually talks about anything that's going to win him any favor. Here's the short list we get of the topics Paul covered when he was meeting regularly with Governor Felix. Paul talked about faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And you know how Felix felt about these things that Paul was talking about? I'd love to tell you that Felix felt lighthearted, happy, like he felt endeared to Paul, like he was building a close friendship. I'd love to tell you that. For Paul's sake, I would love to tell you that. But no. Paul chose to talk about things that caused this response from Felix. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. (laughs) Felix kicks Paul out of his house. Paul, if you were looking for the opportune moment, that was it. And you ruined your chances. 
Why, Paul? Why are these the things that you chose to talk about with Governor Felix? Well, there's a clue built right into the text. I highlighted the word self-control. In Greek, uh, that word is actually eg krates, eg krates. Eg is from ego, which just means I. And krates is from krato, which means power or control. Self-control means the power over yourself. And the interesting thing about this particular word is it only shows up four times ever in the New Testament. Twice are both by Peter in one of the letters that Peter wrote. Once is right here. Luke is writing the story of Acts, and Luke says that Paul talked with Felix about self-control. The final time this word shows up is in the very first letter Paul ever wrote. After he had planted a church in a city called Galatia, he wrote a letter to that church recording just how great it is to find freedom in Christ. And in that letter, Paul uses this word the final time we see it in the New Testament. And it's actually in a passage that you may be very familiar with. Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. Egkrateas. Here's my hypothesis. I can't prove this. But to me, when Paul was talking to Felix and said, what should I talk about? Do you know what Paul had on his mind? He had all the sermons he'd preached in all the churches he'd planted. He had everything he'd written to the church in Galatia in the letter we now call Galatians because Paul wrote Galatians 10 years before that. I think what Paul decided to talk about with Felix is everything we read Paul writing about in the letter to Galatians or in the letter to the Romans. Paul basically says all the same things he's been saying all along. And do you know why? Because Paul doesn't care whether he's free and his ministry is flourishing or if he is in prison and fearing for his life. He simply keeps doing what God has called him to do. Paul's circumstances change, but his one focus doesn't change, and so he keeps proclaiming the message that God has given him to proclaim. As Paul's banging his head against the wall, surely being frustrated trial after trial after trial, Paul finds clarity because of his focus. When he could have been asking that that question that we can so easily get stuck in, when he could have been asking, why is this happening to me? I think he had a different question that actually had more fully captured his heart. Let's just pause here before I give you what I think Paul's next question is. When we get frustrated, you know, maybe you're thinking right now about some real circumstances in your life that are hard, that are heavy. I don't want to pretend like it's not a very real and difficult challenge. I also don't want to suggest at all that we should just pretend like it's fine and gloss over it. No, no, no. 
There's a time and a place, a good time and place for grieving and for lament, for weeping, for crying on the shoulder of a friend. There's a place for that. It's good. But there's also a time to move through it, not because we just want to put it behind us, but because we believe God can heal and redeem any brokenness in our lives. And that's what we see Paul doing. He doesn't get stuck in the question of why. Here's what I think the question is that he asks. It's not written in scripture anywhere. I just see it kind of sitting underneath all of the decisions that Paul makes. I think his heart is compelled, not with why, but rather with what is the opportunity in front of me. Because as Paul was standing trial after trial after trial, he didn't, he didn't get overcome by asking God, why is this happening? Rather, he said, what is the opportunity in front of me? And for Paul, that opportunity was to share the hope of Jesus with some of the most powerful people in the Roman world at that day. And Paul seized that opportunity when it was in front of him. Which brings us, as always, to one of the most challenging parts in my mind of reading God's word. The time when we have to ask, what's your move going to be? And here's what I want to ask you to consider. First of all, we prayed already at the beginning of the service. We acknowledged we have some heavy things in our lives. We have some burdens that we're carrying, some brokenness in our lives. Our church mission statement says we seek to join God in his mission to our broken world. We are living in a broken world, and that brokenness isn't just out there, it's also in here. Would you just recognize again? Maybe you have to finally admit that it's true. Maybe you've admitted that it's true, but you need to more fully acknowledge it before God. But would you simply acknowledge again the brokenness in your life? If that brokenness is painful, if you've been avoiding it, if you feel stuck and you're spinning tires of it, I totally acknowledge and get the real challenge you face. But here's what I'd love to ask you to consider as well. Not because of your strength, but because we believe God is able to restore any brokenness in the world, would you be willing to look at that challenging circumstance and to move through the question of why and ask instead, what is the opportunity in front of me? I think that the life of Paul invites us to trust in a God whose goodness and power is so great that even the most hard and hurtful things we're facing can become opportunities for the life-giving power of God to become real in our lives and through our lives for others. So let me ask you one more time. Whatever hard things you're facing, would you consider asking the question, God, what is the opportunity in front of me? Would you pray with me now?
God, again, our hearts are heavy because the brokenness we feel is real. The burden of carrying it is heavy. And so, God, we simply ask that in acknowledging our brokenness to you, we might find true strength from you. Amen.